Welcome to the Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we discuss The Last Dance, we chat about the mayor's efforts to bring racial equity to our city, and we explore Chicago during the 1918 influenza pandemic. All this, plus the Trump Diaries, dispatches from a desperate time, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for May 8th, 2020. And don't worry, folks, Shanna's back next week. Ben Jarofsky chatted with Hoop Dreams' Steve James about The Last Dance, the 10-part story of the Jordan-era Bulls. James discusses Chicago's deep basketball history, why the Bulls captured global attention, and if the heights of the 90s can ever be reached again in our city. Ben's show airs every Friday at noon. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Everybody knows it's a political talk show that I uh, host, but uh, I'm obsessed with basketball and I'm really obsessed with the Bulls and with uh, the last dance uh, going strong. Uh, four episodes have been released by ESPN. I'm taking this opportunity uh, to talk Bulls basketball, to talk basketball, and in this case, talk documentaries. And my guest today, Steve James. Welcome to the show, Steve. Great to be here, Ben. Uh, so now, just so few people out there who don't know who Steve James is, uh, he's a big-time filmmaker here from the city of Chicago. He made Hoop Dreams, among other things. And uh, something I know a little bit about, because I somehow or other got to feed from the Hoop Dr- Dreams trough uh, by write, writing a book called Hoop Dreams after the movie came out. I just got a uh, question today, Steve, from someone. Uh, <laughs> did you do the book first, or did the movie come first? Uh, and do you tell them the truth? No. Do you tell them the truth? No. I've, I've been lying about this for years. You know it. I go, man, that Steve James stole every good idea I ever had. <laughs> Froze me out of the royalties. I'm broke. I'm stuck in my attic doing a radio show. I'm not, not even radio. It's a podcast. Anyway, no. I, I sometimes, Steve, it really it varies day to day whether I tell the truth. Uh, <laughs> So anyway. Well, and, and especially we screwed you because you were the person that first wrote an article at all on the film to try and help promote our effort. Yes. So, boy, we really, really screwed you. Yes, and you uh, framed that. I didn't believe you. You told me that, and then you sent me a picture today uh, of the frame. Of course, you could have hurried up and framed it uh, yelling at your wife. Why? Hey, frame that thing. Yeah, no, I, I believe you actually framed it. Uh, all right, before I um, – we have a great basketball conversation with Steve. Not only is he a, a movie maker, he made Hoop Dreams. Uh, Steve's a passionate basketball fan, and he wasn't bad at uh, basketball. We'll talk about Steve James' basketball career. But first, Steve, I, got <laughs> I mean, you were way better than me, Steve. I'll be honest. Um, I, I, I probably was. You, you probably no, was. take probably out of that. <laughs> we were actually in a game together once. You probably don't remember in the 80s, but um, – Anyway, before we uh, reminisce about the Bulls and basketball, uh, your last movie, which I'm also a huge fan of, City So Real, about Chicago's mayor's race. Uh, Give folks, just remind them, you've been on our show talking about that. Uh, Give folks a reminder of what the movie's about and when they'll be able to see it. Well, I wish I could tell them when they could see it, Ben, but we haven't sold it yet. The, uh, this, this uh, pandemic has not helped our sales efforts, let's just say. Um, you know, that's the real negative thing about this pandemic is it hurt, hurt my sales efforts. But, um, <laughs> but no, it, but, but we, we made it and we premiered it at Sundance and we played it at this great festival in Columbia, Missouri called True Falls. And it's lined up for some other film festivals to play online. 
but we're still trying to sell it. And it basically what it is, as you know, is it's a four plus hour docu series, what they call them these days, um, where we filmed uh, rather extensively during this last mayoral election, uh, and including the the Jason Van Dyke trial and the Ed Burke indictment and all the crazy stuff that happened in Chicago <laughs> over the course of that one year and made a series out of it. Yeah, and it culminates uh, with the first round of the mayoral election when uh, uh, Tony Preckwinkle and Lori Lightfoot uh, wound up as the, what, uh, the top two vote-getters, and then, of course, they went off, uh, and they had the uh, runoff, and Lori won. Now, you did not follow uh, them after that. It was just exhaustion. Was that it, Steve? That maybe- yeah, well, it was, it was a, a something like that. I mean, in the film, we, we now you know, indicate that Lori won and won handily. And we, and we show a bit of her uh, speech at her victory um, celebration. And, and then we also (laughs) bring in a litany of voices about all, all that stands in front of her, the, you know, the the problems to be solved, uh, which, you know, has certainly come to pass. Uh, We didn't, we didn't anticipate the pandemic though, but, so yeah, we didn't we didn't want to follow through the election because I I thought that by the time you got through us showing you the first round with all these crazy folks running for mayor that you would be saying to us please 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 don't make me watch the runoff. <laughs> yeah, <know>? yeah, <laughs> no mas. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, uncle, uh, uncle. <laughs> uh, no, I I think it was a wise decision, and I well I say that as a political junkie. Um, and I, um, I have to admit, uh, Steve was kind enough to let me see, uh, he sent me some links. I got to watch. It's a great flick. Uh, and I, I look forward to the time when we can talk about the movie and I can write about it. I, 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 I'm under some kind of embargo about it right now. I, I forget the rules of engagement, but I, I believe I'm under an embargo. <laughs> I'm not allowed to talk about it. Right. Even. No, well, I mean, it, it was this way. Um, it would be more helpful to us if we sold it and then we know what's happening to it when you write about it, okay. you know, yeah. uh, and or that we have a we have a another conversation about it. But but, you know, Ben's a, a, a humble guy, if nothing else. You know, he's in the movie <laughs> briefly in a, a on his former radio show <laughs> from, his glory, from his glory years. Talking <laughs> to Ricky Hollywood Hendon. Yes, uh, and that's a that's a pretty good little scene. <laughs> yeah, no, it, it uh, it's a good scene. He originally Steve told me that I would like the documentary was going to be about me, so I was like, oh wow, <laughs> hey, wait a minute, what happened to the? <laughs> All right, enough on that. It's called uh, City So Real, and one day everybody will be watching. It's a great flick. Uh, and um, All right, let's move on to talk basketball. I'm utterly obsessed with The Last Dance, and Steve and I have had at least two conversations on the phone about it. He shares my obsession to a degree or another. Uh, big-time basketball fan, Steve James, made Hoop Dreams, of course. Steve, talk about your life in basketball. You actually have a legitimate – all I did was play intramural basketball at Evanston High School, okay? <laughs> I can't even claim, you know, remotely that I was good. I was really good at intramural. I wasn't even really good at intramurals. I was average at intramurals. Uh, but you – you, you did. 
What's you that? didn't even do have any pine, you didn't have any pine time on the on the high school team. No, I, okay, I went to uh, Evanston High School, proud graduate of ETHS, oh. and I yeah. this is okay. This is every. I did not start playing basketball uh, until uh, I was in junior high. Somehow or other, I was from Rhode Island. I for some reason nobody ever played basketball in Rhode Island. So by yeah. the time I started playing basketball, I was so late. I never learned how to dribble. I shoot wrong. Kids make fun of me all the time for my shot. I had no uh, techniques of any kind. I believe, Steve, that had I had basketball training at an early age, like let's say seven or eight years old, I probably, with my obsessive behavior, would have been good enough to barely make the team and sit on the bench. That's an honest, <laughs> okay? I would have been able to make the team and sit on, I'd be like the 15th guy, you know uh, but but you were on the team. Talk about that. Yeah, well, you know, and, and in defense of you, I mean, Evanston's a big school and traditionally been a pretty good basketball school. So, you know, that's not an easy team to make. Thank but, you. Thank you for um, that defense. I, yes, I grew up in uh, I grew up in Hampton, Virginia, uh, Tidewater area. And, um, you know, uh, and I played for Hampton High School. There were a number of high schools in the area, but Hampton was the you know the the, the high school going way back to its origins. Um, my dad was a uh, terrific athlete there, um, an all-state football player, uh, and track, and was in the Hampton High School Hall of Fame. His picture was on the wall, and I was not anywhere near the athlete my dad was. But, but I, I knew better than to try to play football or in track since he was so good at it. So I picked the sport he didn't play, which was <laughs> basketball. And uh, and I, you know, I was a pretty good player. I was a good, I was a pretty good high school player. I, I was a, you know, a two year starter. Um, I was, you know, my senior year, I was the leading scorer on our team and leading rebounder, but. The thing you have to understand about our team is we, we had a madman for a coach and we played this slow down offense. We scored about 48 points a game. So he did not do much for my uh, stats, let me just say. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> coaching problems. We'll get into that with the yeah. Bulls. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I like to say that I averaged 20 points a game less than Allen Iverson did when he played in the district uh, 20 years after me. All right, let's so. talk about that. Uh, that uh, that's a great transition. Uh, one of the movies that Steve made <laughs> is about Allen Iverson. Uh, um, I'm biased, Steve. I think you're, my favorite movie is obviously Hoop Dreams, but I gotta t I'm just a bias because I wasn't uh, involved with that project at the end. I... I think the Allen Iverson movie which is, if I take Hoop Dreams out, is my favorite Steve James movie. Talk about out, making a movie about Allen Iverson because so much of it uh, is about it's autobiographical. You know, autobiographical. You talk about you growing up and uh, your dad and uh, life uh, in Virginia. Talk a little bit about the Allen Iverson movie. Yeah, you know, because Alan Iverson is not a big enough topic that you know I could just do a film about him. I gotta, I gotta include myself in it. You know, uh, so the way that happened was is that this was part of the ESPN Thirty for Thirty, the original Thirty for Thirty um, films. And when they reached out to me and a, and, a, and a lot of filmmakers and said, you know, we're, we're going to do this, and they knew, you know, they knew I because of hoop trains and my love of sports. They said, is there any sports story? that 
you know, you've always wanted to tell that, that, you know, happened within the last 30 years of when ESPN started. That's where the, they want to do 30 for films based on 30 years of ESPN. That's where the title came from. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I, you know, I immediately thought of Alan Iverson, um, because he had played in my district and lived in my town as well as lived in neighboring Newport News for part of his growing up. And, um, I had wanted to do a film on Alan Iverson in high school, but uh, it, it happened at the time that um, I was actually finishing Hoop Dreams. Um, it happened around 1996, 97. And I was, we were finishing, um, I mean, not, not 96, 97, um, 90, uh, 93, 94. And we were, we were finishing Hoop Dreams and I just was like, there's no way I can uh, go with no money and try to do a film on Alan Iverson when I'm when we're trying to do a film with no money on Who Kids. So, so, so it it just kind of went by the wayside. So when they when they told me about this, I just I went back and I just started to talk to them about Iverson in high school and the, and the 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 racial bowling alley brawl that he was involved with in high school and how that changed the course of his life. And they knew the story because it was a big story back then. Even when he was in high school before the internet, it was a big story. And, but they said, you know, how would it be different? And I said, well, I'm from there. And I started to talk about that. And they immediately said, well, that's an angle we would love to see you explore it in. So they were the ones that pushed me to, uh, to make it more autobiographical. And so what I did is I went back to Hampton, you know, now the, the film came out in 2009, but, you know, this was, you know, many years later, um, I went back to Hampton and to revisit what had happened to Allen Iverson and how it had really divided the community largely, but not exclusively, but largely along lines of race. And to try and tell that story, not from the vantage point of like retrying the case, <laughs> but really looking at why, how is it an athlete of his stature in that community where people, 10,000 people would turn out to watch him play before the bowling alley brawl. And so many people wanted to see him go to prison after the brawl. These are Dispatches from a Desperate Time. 
For the past month, under the Shelter-in-Place Directive, I've been reading through issues of the Chicago Tribune and Chicago Defender to get a sense of what everyday life was like during the so-called Spanish influenza epidemic of 1918, fixing on the differences as much as the similarities and learning that no one's hands were clean. Part six, race. A sign reads, help wanted, white. In a recent issue of the Daily Papers, we are informed that more than 300 telephone girls have been stricken with influenza, and the Chicago Telephone Company is advertising for young women to take their places. What we would like to know is whether or not this company is willing to accept applications from our girls, and if not, why not? We have hundreds of competent, honest young women of prepossessing appearance, many of them graduates of the public schools of this city. The Chicago Defender, November 2nd, 1918. As the sickness spread through our city, the Defender reported on the efforts of Miss M.J. Gordon, who through the support of the Chicago Urban League, put together a team of women to track and register cases among the black community. A crisis of this scale did not respect assigned roles, and soon the women were taking a direct hand in mitigating the suffering, whether that involved cleaning the homes of the ill, securing medical care, or facilitating the removal of the dead. As, in the case of a father, forced by his job to leave unattended his wife and five children, all infected. Stories of simple acts of care like these filled the pages of the Defender as it reported on the effects of the epidemic across the country. While in a regular column on public health, Dr. A. Wilberforce Williams of Provident Hospital stressed the need for preventive measures given the, quote, scarcity of doctors and nurses. The paper noted that skilled individuals like Olive Walker, described as a trained nurse of Cleveland, were, quote, denied the privilege of helping the Red Cross in Ohio on account of her racial identity. Chapter 7, Sports. More influenza retards maroon. A renewed and vigorous influenza outbreak threw another monkey wrench into football plans at the University of Chicago yesterday. A newly reported contingent of 140 drafted men, mechanics, assigned to the university for training, developed 30 cases. The Chicago Tribune, October 22, 1918. Two days before the first Saturday in November, the Purple of Northwestern awaited the decision of the Evanston Health Commissioner as to whether a match against Ohio State could be played. Not far to the south, Chicago's health commissioner, John Dill Robertson, had already forbidden the playing of football in the city that weekend, further complicating a difficult year for the University of Chicago Maroons. With several players lost to military service and a single game against a Big Ten rival yet to be played, the Maroons decided to cede their scheduled home field advantage and head to Indiana, where regulations against public gatherings were more lax. There, a winning streak of 20 years against Purdue ended, and the Maroons would finish 0-5 in the conference, 4-6-1 on the year. Better than Northwestern, who would play only five games total, but one against Ohio State scratched by the sickness. The Purple bested Knox College 47-7 the following weekend on November 9th, the day that former Chicago White Sox outfielder Larry Chappelle died. Among many athletes to succumb to the sickness, he was, quote, a private in the medical corps at the time and considered a casualty of the war. Chapter 8, Service. City doctor dies a martyr to work for flu victims. Dr. Harold R. Dwyer of 3144 Lincoln Avenue, a city health officer for 16 years, died yesterday at the Contagious Disease Hospital, a martyr to his work for influenza victims. He had worked incessantly since the beginning of the epidemic, and in so doing contracted diphtheria. His death was sudden. Chicago Tribune, October 21st, 1918. In early October, Dr. A. Augustus O'Neill of the Red Cross, charged with coordinating operations in Chicago, received from the main office in Washington an urgent appeal for doctors to fight the epidemic. 
Physicians who offered service outside Illinois would receive the same pay as a captain in the Army, $200 a month and expenses. Within days, O'Neill was looking locally for help, and he asked all trained nurses, registered nurses, practicing nurses, and nurses' aides to join the fight, many of them by taking up temporary residence in the home of one of the infected. Quote, Will you accept the position with pay as a trained nurse in the home of an influenza patient? Asked one appeal before adding, Will you accept a position with pay to aid with the housework in such a home? One who benefited from the crisis in the public's trust was Julia Lyons, described as a, quote, woman of diamonds and furs, silken ankles and jails, gem-studded fingers and aliases by the dozen. She posed as a flu nurse and conned several patients by selling them medicine at inflated price, such as $100 for a can of oxygen worth $5.60, when not robbing them of their possessions. Of the eight patients she attended, three died. Part 9, Return. All bands off, Chicago healthiest city in the world, says Robertson. If you want to dodge the flu and the new, Chicago is the best place to be in. The epidemic here is over. Dr. John Dill Robertson, Commissioner of Health, in a letter to Lucius Teeter, president of the Chicago Association of Commerce, yesterday declared that, as far as pneumonia and influenza are concerned, Chicago is the safest place in the United States. Chicago Tribune, November 10th, 1918. Starting Tuesday and extending through Friday, first in the north and then with each passing day a little further south, the Chicago quarantine lid lifted. Cabarets with music allowed but no dancing, followed by the theaters and picture places, and then political gatherings. The midterm elections were just eight days away, all with a 10 p.m. closing to, quote, check celebrating tendencies and leave time to get plenty of sleep. Finally, on Saturday, November 2nd, 1918, dancing returned to the city of Chicago. We are practically out of the woods, said Health Commissioner John Dill Robertson. All bans are off. In a few days, I am sure I shall be again justified in stating that Chicago is the healthiest city in the world. On November 11th, the war ended. People filled the streets, partied, and paraded. By early December, 601 cases and 54 deaths were being reported in a single day, with Robertson concluding the, quote, present epidemic seems to have started to the north of the city and was passing over to the south. He suggested Chicagoans stop shaking hands. Quote, if Santa Claus makes any house-to-house -house trips at Illinois Christmas Eve and morning, State Health Director St. Clair Drake told the Tribune on December 22nd, he will have to wear a flu mask. Part 10, 1918. Steam shovel digs grave of victims of flu. Dateline, New York. A steam shovel was used in one of New York's cemeteries today to dig a trench in which to inter temporarily the bodies of victims of Spanish influenza. This extraordinary procedure was made necessary by a shortage of grave diggers, coupled with a large number of deaths. At another cemetery, there were 400 unburied bodies, and city laborers have been drafted to prepare graves. General Rosalie get five million, and socialism. Dateline, New York. General Rosalie Jones, who gained fame by leading a suffrage army in Albany a few years ago, has inherited $5,000 more or less and turned socialist a red card socialist in which she accepts the party principles in full. She said, quote, I feel that the present two controlling parties have seen their day and are not looking forward. The socialists are the thinking part of the political body. I don't think it fair in any way to say that socialists are disloyal. There is a sharp distinction between disloyalty and unloyalty. By unloyalty, I mean more or less passive. Furthermore, I believe that the majority of women in time will vote the socialist ticket. Both stories, the Chicago Tribune, October 28, 1918. One above the other, these articles appear on the page in the paper. 
While I set out to consider the impact of the Spanish influenza epidemic on Chicago, the end result was over 8,500 dead, while, as I write this on May 1st, 2020, 2,457 residents of Illinois have died from COVID-19, I keep returning to these two articles. How profoundly we failed as a people, they suggest, in that this moment, more than a century removed, doesn't feel remote but close. While the past provides perspective, sometimes comfort and inspiration, the story of General Jones reminds me that our responsibility to one another is a fight each must wage in the present. Dispatches from a Desperate Time were compiled and written by Paul DeRica, read by Jamie Trecker, produced by the staff and the volunteers of Lumpen Radio in association with the Quarantine Times and the Newberry Library. Visit quarantinetimes.org. This is a uh, There is this anecdotal evidence among, once again, coming from the communities I'm a part of, that this has some beneficial effects on the respiratory system and, and works in a way uh, to sort of uh, uh, clear the Mallow 21 out of, the, uh, out of you and or make the length of the uh, infection – uh, less so and less severe. So what you're going to want to do is, is what I've been, there's a lot of preparations for this, but the one I think that is the easiest for the listener would be to simply find your, uh, your easiest source of lanthanides in your house. Now, this could be something as simple as, as a, uh, as a very, um, as your nice magnets, I know many of us, myself included, happen to have a number of medicinal magnets already in the household. Uh, those those work quite well. Um, in if you have a TV, a color TV, uh, the screen, the color phosphors that are actually impregnated in the back of the screen are are a excellent source of lanthanides. Um, it, you know, even even if you have uh, money, and we know, I, 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 it seems to me as if money is worth next to nothing in in the situation on the streets these days. Just given the widespread uh, collapse of uh, of the the markets and what have you that I've seen in the wake of Mallow Twenty One, can you can you confirm that? What is the worth of money right now? Uh, m- money money currently does not exist. It's in its current in in its normal form, I would say there's primarily a a sequence of uh, barter barter and or cryptocurrency exchanges uh, to gain access to uh, materials at least for those people that are uh, that are just really battling to survive out here. Right. So if if your money being uh, so devalued at this point, yeah, it's uh, more like it's more of a decoration. It's it's something to flaunt uh, more than it is to actually actually purchase anything with. Right. So at this point, there it why you know it wouldn't hurt. It do, it can't hurt to take your money and extract those lanthanides, those rare earth elements. And so ultimately, mm-hmm. what what uh, I've seen as the main method of preparation is you take whatever and wherever you can find these impregnated rare earth metals, and and what you do is is you put them in a big pot. Uh, you're gonna want a uh, a copper pot or um, a plastic bucket. Uh, that can handle boiling water. Uh, and you're going to want to add one part vinegar, one part boiling water, and as much of these 
lanthanide rich materials as you can to fill up essentially half the bucket's worth or pot's worth. And you bring that mm-hmm. to a boil and you uh and you sort of give it a stir or once again if you have a plastic bucket you could put pre-boiling water in it already and you stir and you stir and you stir uh and you drain the liquid out and then you repeat the process two or three times one part vinegar one part boiling water stir drain stir drain and then what you should be left with is a is a rich um colloidal mixture of these rare earth elements suspended in acidic water and then from there, all you do is you put that in another, a second vessel, once again, hopefully uh, copper, something that's resistant to uh, high acid, and you boil that down. Um, and once it stops steaming and starts smoking, that's, that's where you can find the lanthanides, and you sort of inhale that smoke deeply, and it coats the lungs, and it creates a place inhospitable to the virus, uh, the Mallow 21 virus. Broadcast every Saturday, 8 to 9 p.m. This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump claims he will hold huge rallies citing pent-up demand. Experts say states have opened too soon as deaths continue to tick up. The White House secretly concedes cases are going to soar. Trump tries to shift blame to China. And unemployment hits 25% in many states as Trump takes a victory lap. Mission accomplished. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1198, May 1st. Experts said the coronavirus pandemic is likely to last at least another 18 months and won't be controlled until about two-thirds of the world's population is immune. The report also warned the USA faces a second big wave of coronavirus infections in the fall and winter. Dr. Anthony Fauci suggested it would be doable to have hundreds of millions of doses of a potential COVID-19 vaccine ready by January if things fall in the right place. Trump claimed, quote, honestly, I'm really in charge of fast-tracking a vaccine like you've never seen before. Trump then claimed that he'd done a spectacular job handling the coronavirus pandemic on a day when the death toll hit 60,000 in the United States and with an excess of 30 million Americans filing jobless claims. Trump claimed he's anticipating a major rebound in the coming months and a spectacular 2021, saying, quote, I think we can actually surpass where we were. I feel it. I think sometimes what I feel is better than what I think, unfortunately or fortunately. Trump said he is in no rush to provide federal assistance to states, saying that Democrats would have to make concessions. Quote, if they do it, they're going to have to give us a lot. Economists warn that unless the states are bailed out, the United States could shrink into a Great Depression. Trump again tweeted support for protesters, some of whom showed up armed in Michigan, telling Governor Gretchen Whitmer to, quote, make a deal with them. Those protesters displayed Confederate flags, nooses, and Nazi symbols and walked with AK-47 into Michigan State House. Whitmer did not respond to Trump, but called some of the protesters disgraceful. And Trump said he hopes to have rallies again before the November election, citing a tremendous pent-up demand. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany held the first daily news briefing in more than a year. She opened with the line, I will never lie to you. You have my word on that. Fifteen minutes later, she lied. Day 1199, May 2nd. Trump claimed his former national security advisor, Michael Flynn, was the victim of dirty, filthy cops at the top of the FBI. Look at what they did to the guy. I mean, he couldn't have known too much about what was happening. Trump then claimed Flynn is in the process of being exonerated and will come back bigger and better. 
seizing on unsealed FBI records that noted an internal discussion about the FBI's handling of the case. One of the notes says simply, quote, we have a case on Flynn plus Russia. Flynn pled guilty to charges that he lied to the FBI. He is now seeking to withdraw that guilty plea. Trump quietly moved after hours to replace the top watchdog of the Department of Health and Human Services after her office released a report correctly showing supply shortages and testing delays at major hospitals during the start of the pandemic. Christy Grimm was publicly insulted by Trump three weeks ago when the report came out. Trump is also being urged by compadres to fire FBI Director Christopher Wray. Attorney General William Barr has declined that request. And Trump told Sean Hannity to sue the New York Times after they accurately reported that Hannity had repeatedly downplayed the threat of the coronavirus on his program. Fox News is reportedly worried about the legal exposure it faces from things that Hannity and others said during the first days of the pandemic on the air. Day 1200, May 3rd. Trump claimed we're going to lose anywhere from 75,000 to 100,000 people during an appearance on Fox News and then claimed that was a good total. Three days prior, Trump had said the number of fatalities could be as low as 65,000. That's already been passed. Trump made these statements while sitting in front of the Lincoln Memorial and went on to claim that he has to deal with a hostile press the likes of which no president has ever seen other than that gentleman right up there. They always said nobody got treated worse than Lincoln. I believe I am treated worse. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo claimed without offering evidence that China manufactured the COVID-19 virus. Pompeo claimed there's, quote, enormous evidence to support the theory the virus originated in the Wuhan Institute of Virology and not a nearby market. Also, a Department of Homeland Security intelligence report claims China, quote, intentionally concealed the severity and how contagious the virus was from the world in early January in order to stock up on medical supplies needed to respond to the virus. Trump promised a conclusive report on the Chinese origins of the coronavirus outbreak. The Secret Service paid more than $33,000 to rent rooms at Trump's Washington Hotel for 137 nights in a row. The service was guarding Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin while he stayed in a luxury suite. Mnuchin paid for his own room. Day 1201, May 4th. A leaked report said the White House feels that cases and deaths from coronavirus will continue to soar with a projected 3,000 deaths daily by June. America faces the prospect that 20 to 30,000 cases a day may hit as the lockdown tactics of states have not been effective. Many states are reopening despite continuing to see new cases. Rural areas are now being hit hard by the virus as well. Over 100,000 Americans are expected to die from this novel virus. But Trump said that Americans should view themselves as warriors and claimed it was not realistic to keep up strict social distancing guidelines. When asked what he would say to Americans who have lost someone to the virus, Trump replied, I love you. Directly contradicting the White House, Dr. Fauci said the best evidence shows the coronavirus did not originate in a lab. Fauci said the evidence is very, very strongly leaning toward this could not have been artificially or deliberately manipulated. Everything about the stepwise evolution over time strongly indicates this virus evolved in nature and then jumped species. Fauci made the comments to National Geographic. Trump claimed that Beijing will do anything they can to make him lose his re-election bid in November. Concurrently, Trump pressured U.S. intelligence agencies to provide evidence supporting his claims that the virus outbreak originated in a state-run lab. Worldwide intelligence agencies believe the, quote, wide scientific consensus is that the COVID-19 virus was not man-made or genetically modified. 
Trump, however, is exploring retaliatory measures against China, including suing for compensation, stripping China of sovereign immunity, or canceling debt to the nation. And Trump claimed that bailouts for states are unfair to Republicans because, in his view, the states that would benefit are run by Democrats. Trump claimed that California, Illinois, and New York are in tremendous debt because they have been mismanaged over a long period of time. Quote, Florida is doing phenomenal. Texas is doing phenomenal. The Midwest is, you know, fantastic, very little debt. It's not fair to the Republicans because all the states that need help, you know, they're run by Democrats. In fact, two of the three states that Trump named send more federal dollars to every other state than the remaining states combined due to the size of their economies. Day 1202, May 5th. Coronavirus cases in America are now growing between 2 to 4% daily nationwide. More than 1,000 people are dying every day. Removing New York, which is the hardest hit urban area from the data, shows a steady increase of cases nationwide, spanning big cities and rural areas. Projections show that cases could increase by 200,000 each day, as states with surging infections like Indiana have moved prematurely to ease mitigation. New polling also shows Americans remain deeply hesitant about reopening. Large majorities of Americans said they were opposed to reopening dining restaurants, movie theaters, and other community businesses. The federal scientist involved in developing a coronavirus vaccine has filed a whistleblower complaint with the U.S. Office of Special Counsel claiming he was fired for objecting to an attempt to steer lucrative contracts to people with connections to Trump. Dr. Rick Bright said in his filing there were, quote, efforts to fund potentially dangerous drugs promoted by those with political connections. Bright also alleged that DHHS suffered an abuse of authority and gross mismanagement, pressure from HHS leadership to ignore scientific merit and expert recommendations, and instead to award lucrative contracts based on cronyism. Despite this, Mike Pence said they were going to wind down the coronavirus task force because, quote, of the tremendous progress we've made as a country. Pence said the task force could wrap up by June. It is not clear whether another group would replace it. Trump promised to resume the White House coronavirus briefing, saying everybody enjoyed them. We'll probably maybe do one a week, sometimes two, depending on the news. You know, we set every record with those press conferences. Six million people all the time. You know, we had tremendous numbers. Literally, I heard, is this true? It was the highest rated hour in cable television history. That's what I heard. That is not true. Trump blocked Dr. Anthony Fauci from testifying before the House, claiming, quote, the House is a setup. The House is a bunch of Trump haters. Trump then accused Democrats of wanting the country's response to the virus to fail. They frankly want our situation to be unsuccessful, which means death. Day 1203, May 6th. Under ferocious pressure, Trump walked back yesterday's comments and said the coronavirus task force would, quote, continue on indefinitely. Trump had claimed the task force, helmed by Dr. Anthony Fauci and Dr. Deborah Birx, would be wound down even as cases continue to rise in the United States. Many Americans say they trust Fauci and Birx far more than Trump. Trump then said he had, quote, solved every problem and was taking care of all the things. We've ensured a ventilator for every patient who needs one, the testing and the masks and all of the things. We've solved every problem. We've solved it quickly. Trump made the comments on the day when an internal discussion showed the government is actually still struggling to keep up requests from governors for more medical equipment and for more PPE. And Jared Kushner's shadow task force reportedly botched procurement of PPE and added weeks of delays to the process. Few of the people Kushner appointed to the panel had any experience in healthcare. Volunteers were reportedly told to prioritize responding to VIPs like Fox News personalities instead of governors. 
Trump ordered the military to paint his border wall black, which will add $500 million to the cost. Trump claims the barrier has to be the color black because it will discourage climbers because of its heat-absorbing properties. Military commanders and border officials consider the black paint both unnecessary and a maintenance burden. And Trump is seeking to formalize guidelines on how companies can mine resources on the moon. Trump suggests safety zones should be used to help protect bases from rival countries or companies. The so-called Artemis plan represents a major shift for the USA, which for generations viewed the moon as off-limits and a non-state territory for exploitation. Trump apparently complained privately to his advisors about the numbers being reported from coronavirus deaths, claiming the media is exaggerating them. In fact, experts believe the deaths in the United States are being undercounted. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos released new guidelines for how universities and schools should handle complaints of sexual misconduct. The new regulation severely pairs back the definition of sexual harassment. It will now require it be severe, pervasive, and objectively offensive. It also presumes the accused are innocent and will give the students the right to cross-examine accusers during live hearings to challenge their credibility. Meanwhile, as the Senate resumed for the first time, Trump's nominee for the newly created Special Inspector General for Pandemic Response said he would be independent and resist pressure from Trump. That nominee, Brian Miller, is a member of the White House Counsel's Office. And in an interview with the New York Post, Trump claimed, quote, the one thing the pandemic has taught us is that I was right. He added he believes Americans, quote, are starting to feel good now. Day 1204, May 7th. Trump said he will continue to try to toss out the Affordable Care Act. Quote, we want to terminate health care under Obamacare. We run it really well, but running it great, it's still lousy health care. Many aides, including his own attorney general, have privately allowed the law should be preserved during a pandemic. Trump has also never offered any plan to replace it. Unemployment deepened by another 3.3 million Americans today. 35 million people in the U.S. have now filed for unemployment benefits. Many states are seeing unemployment rates of 25%. It is by far the worst since the Great Depression. Trump has quashed the release of a set of detailed documents created by the nation's top investigators to give advice to local leaders deciding when and how to reopen public places. A report from the CDC was supposed to be published last Friday. Agency scientists were told the guidance, quote, would never see the light of day. Trump insisted that a bit more death was a price worth paying for an immediate economic recovery. Will some people be affected badly? Yes, but we have to get our country open. A small mercenary force led by former U.S. military personnel attempted to invade and conquer Venezuela. The fiasco, which involved the fighters being rounded up in part by irate local fishermen, claimed to have been sent by Trump. One of the captured Americans, Luke Denon, claimed he had been acting on orders from Trump. The incompetent bunch also apparently tweeted about their planned coup before attempting it. Trump sent an ally to the Pentagon to vet officials' loyalty to him. Michael Catrone, who has served as Vice President Mike Pence's top national security aide, is now expected to serve in the Pentagon, largely to spy on and report back on how loyal officials are to Trump. And in a bizarre moment, Trump visited a mask-making factory in Phoenix, Arizona, entering to the tune of Live and Let Die. Trump was, of course, not wearing a mask. These are the Trump Diaries.
Chuck Mertz spoke with Vijay Kolonjavati about how the coronavirus pandemic is also an ecological disaster. Kolonjavati discussed how we may never be able to go back to the global chains of production that have driven the neoliberal order. This is Hell with Chuck airs every Sunday and Thursday at 10 a.m. Well, I, I think actually we, we probably, well, we certainly will not end up in the same place, regardless of whether we, you know, whether the intended uh, the intention is to return to normal. But I fear that, you know, what we saw in 2019 with some of those, with, with uh, you know, these unprecedented uh, environmental catastrophes, but also social movements and social um, social unrest is that, you know, they're going to take on a different kind of form that could be further exacerbated by the things that we are seeing with this, with this pandemic. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, uh, returning to normal in that sense is not only in returning to, to those, to that kind of state of unrest and anxiety on a, on a, you know, national and global scale, but, uh, possibly, you know, ramped up on, on a scale that we haven't seen before. You write that COVID-19 felt like it came out of nowhere. The situation and potentially the virus itself is rapidly evolving, has taken world governments as, uh, by surprise and left the stock market reeling. Its emergence, however, makes self-evident the fault lines in global production systems and the ultra-connectivity of our globalized world. Can the global production systems simply either fix itself or be tweaked incrementally, put a Band-Aid on it, and we can move forward with the global production system we had before the virus without causing more viruses? Absolutely not. Uh, I mean, I think, uh, um, you know, that, that sort of quick fix technical solution is, is, is definitely what is being uh, advocated. And I think that, um, you know, we of course we need to, to to push forward to find a vaccine, but but just looking to find a vaccine for this virus is is certainly not um, going to stop future pandemics from emerging um, of this very nature, potentially far more more uh, extreme and more dangerous than this one. And um, again, this this sort of goes back to looking at the root causes of these of these problems, which do very much have to, which very much have to do with with uh, uh, global food production systems and uh, their interconnectivity, the speed and and hyper acceleration by which um, they are moving, the cheapening of labor and of resources to enable these, you know, to enable these, these circuits of production to move at breakneck pace. Um, and if that is, is you know, if, if the idea is to quickly get back to that as, as soon as possible and to erase, you know, what we've experienced right here, then we are going to see, you know, we're, we're, not, we're not actually addressing this problem at all. But you mentioned, and, and, uh, go ahead. And, and of course, just to say, just add that, that, that it will uh, exacerbate the, the situation going forward. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic, so please enjoy this brand new track from local band Killer Drones. This is the song Trifoliate the Black Mountain Rainbow. It was engineered by Corey Albritton at Studio C.
if you can hear this. If you can hear this, you're listening to WLPN 105.5 FM, Chicago. The following are spontaneous compositions recorded live at the Center for Search and Research. Here are a couple selections from a trio comprised of Brian Dua, Corey Albert, and Michael Newhouse. Enjoy. Thank you. 
The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.